Hey church, uh, welcome back this morning. Hopefully we are able to still gather in person this morning. The rain is supposed to be coming again and we're just not sure what we're going to be doing. So some of you may be watching this uh, just because you weren't able to get there or you're not quite ready to join us in person again. Or all of us may be watching this because we were rained out this Sunday morning. Um, but either way, you can kind of see where I'm coming from this morning. I'll give you just a second to guess where you think I might be at church today. You probably guessed it. It's our nursery, and it's headed by Becky Blackwell. We're so thankful for her and all of the work that she does at organizing volunteers. And this space has felt a little bit empty lately, as you can imagine. And so just kind of wanted to uh, jump in here and get some use out of this space this morning. So that's, that's where we're coming from today. Uh, if you joined us last week, you know that we had an abbreviated time together. Uh, we had everything set up outside and some of the mist came and that was okay, but then the wind started blowing and things started blowing over and it started raining harder and so we really shot through our our time together and it was a wonderful time to be together. There were over 90 people here that showed up in our parking lot and uh, we would encourage you next time we offer that, jump in and, and come and join us that morning. In fact, uh, it was raining in my, you probably can't see it, but the pages of my Bible still appear as though, you know, they've had rain on them and they have. Uh, but it was a joyous time to be together. Everyone I've talked to said, it's not what we expected, but it was really needed. And so we're excited to, to offer that and to do that, continue doing that going forward. But to think about our text this morning, uh, it's in Ecclesiastes chapter 5. In the first seven verses of that chapter, we're going to look at, and it kind of changes tone a little bit. You know, the last few times that we've been talking, it was uh, about different things that Solomon is saying, hey, these are things that I've tried and they've not made me happy. They have not given me ultimate meaning. And the last thing that he said that we kind of talked about last week was the idea of friendship, but also the idea of envy and how those things can actually work against each other. You know, if you're always envious of the people that you're close to, then there's a chance that you're not going to be close to them very much longer. Instead, he suggests in this text from last week that we should cooperate with other people and lift each other up. And so we talked about this poem that you might be familiar with that says, Only one life will soon be passed. Only what's done for Christ will last. The things that we do here on earth are meaningful when they're done in the name of Christ. And so don't get lost in the meaninglessness of night life. Uh, all is vanity. Vanity, vanity. Everything is vanity, he says at the beginning of this book. And while that's true in an earthly sense, the things done for Christ and for the glory of God are eternal. And so we want to recognize that and encourage you. In fact, in the, in the book of Hebrews, it says that we are to spur one another on to love and good works. So what we want to do is encourage you to keep pursuing Christ. And when you're continuing to pursue Christ, you're going to be involved in good works. That's an evidence of our faith in him. And so this morning... In chapter 5, Solomon moves on kind of to another way that people try to find meaning during their lifetimes. 
And I'm going to use this term and define it for you. You may have heard it before. He's talking, Solomon is talking about religiosity. Now, notice that I didn't say or use the word religion. That's because the Bible actually uses that word, the word religion, in a positive way, specifically in, in the book of James. True religion does stuff. True religion is a good thing. So I'm defining religiosity as religion without relationship. Religion without relationship. So this person maintains the rituals of religion, but they don't have any desire towards a growing relationship with God. And I think this is precisely what Solomon is telling us to avoid in our text this morning. So grab your Bible. Pause the video if you need to. Grab your Bible and turn to Ecclesiastes chapter 5. I'll be reading from the English Standard Version, verses 1 through 7. Guard your steps when you go to the house of God. To draw near, to listen, is better than to offer the sacrifice of fools. For they do not know that they are doing evil. Be not rash with your mouth, nor let your heart be hasty to utter a word before God. For God is in heaven and you are on earth. Therefore, let your words be few. For a dream comes with much business, and a fool's voice with many words. When you vow a vow to God, do not delay paying it, for he has no pleasure in fools. Pay what you vow. It's better that you should not vow than you should vow and not pay. Let not your mouth lead you into sin, and do not say before the messenger that it was a mistake. Why should God be angry at your voice and destroy the work of your hands? For when dreams increase and words grow many, there is vanity." But God is the one you must fear. Let's go to the Lord this morning. Lord, we, we want to learn how to fear you better uh, because we know uh, that fear is the beginning of wisdom. Not in being afraid in that sense, Lord, um, but in reverent honor and in reverent respect. And we, we want to learn how to do that better. And so guard us as we come into your presence this morning. Just as this text says, Lord, we want to guard our feet in where we go and in what we do in our mouths and, and all of these things. So teach us this morning how to do this better, how to really enter into worship. We pray these things in Jesus' name. Amen. So <clears throat> I learned something this week. And by the way, the side note here, this is the first day in a lot of days where there's not any rain. And so you may hear grass being mowed outside, or you may hear things going on in the church. That's just because there's some bustle to hear this morning, which is exciting too. But um, I learned something this week, something called cat and dog theology. Okay, you, you maybe have heard of this before, but this is, this is the, the crux of it. Basically, a dog looks at you and says, man, you pet me and you feed me and you shelter me and you take care of me. You love me. You must be God. But a cat looks at you and says, you pet me, you feed me, you shelter me, you care for me and you love me. I must be God. Now, no matter which side of the cat versus dog debate you're on, you know that, that that's true. I'm typically more of a cat person myself, and this is so totally true. But the problem here is that too many Christians, or people that call themselves Christians, they view God with the attitude of a cat. They have the cat theology. They think that God exists to serve them and to make their lives more comfortable. But the truth is... God is God, and we are not. Now, this is confirmed in verse 2 here, in chapter 5. He says, God is in heaven, 
and you are on earth. God is God and we are not. For many, religiosity or just religious rituals, they've replaced a personal relationship with God. And we've seen a lot of times quite content to just go on in that. So instead of standing in fear and awe of God, we end up using religious acts and rituals to try to get God to do stuff for us. Think about that for just a moment. Now, at its core, whether we want to admit it or not, that's just manipulation. When when we seek to manipulate or control God by the words that we say or our actions, you know what? We're not worshiping God anymore. We're worshiping ourselves. God has just become another means to an end in that scenario. Now think about the time of writing here in the book of Ecclesiastes. How did a person in that time, how did they draw near to God? How did they draw near to worship God? Well, they would go to the temple, right? That's one of the things Solomon was known for is, is, is building the temple. And they would go there and they would, they would make sacrifices. Or they would have a priest make sacrifices as an offering for their sin. At the time, the, the temple is where God dwelt amongst his people. But remember how the temple was constructed. It was constructed with a lot of different sections and a lot of different walls and curtains and There were places that only some people could go, and even then, only certain times of the year and certain times like that. Overall, the temple was designed with separation for a purpose. Okay, The overall purpose of that really was to just remind people of the greatness and the power of the Most High God, and that they were not Him. So men and women, they could approach God in this, But it required specific rules to be followed and specific sacrifices to to be offered. Most of the time, it required the shedding of blood. And because of sin, mankind, we were separated from a holy God. And all of how the temple was constructed was designed to make that clear. But do you know what else sin does? Sin also easily turns the right way of approaching God into just ritualistic religiosity. So instead of actually drawing near to listen, as Solomon says in verse 1, we can tend to view proper worship as like this formula for our selfish purposes. I think this is what the sacrifice of fools is. Is that's mentioned in verse 1 here. Fools believe that going through just religious motions somehow wins the favor of God. But you remember, God has said all along that that kind of, of worship that isn't what He expects and it's not what He wants. Just for reference, remember 1 Samuel chapter 15, 22. Does the Lord take pleasure in burnt offerings and sacrifices as much as in obedience? To obey is better than sacrifice, and to listen is better than the fat of rams. So, what does God want from you more? The 50 bucks that you drop in the offering plate or in the basket at at church, or a real relationship with you that compels you to listen to Him and obey Him? We've all been guilty of coming to church and just doing the churchy thing because that's what we're supposed to do, but we do it even when our hearts aren't in it, okay? On any given Sunday, there are people and folks in church 
who feel that way and do those things. And it bothers some people when they realize it. And it doesn't bother some other people. And, and I think the scariest part of this is that it's possible to come to church week after week and month after month and year after year and our lives and our hearts never be changed. We're still mean to other people. We still ignore our Christian duties in the home and at work. We are indifferent to what happens in, in our church. Um, we're corrupt in our speech, and we don't consider how any of those things affect God and our relationship with Him. We believe and we live that way because I don't think we have an appropriate fear of the Lord that we'll talk more about in verse 7 in just a few moments. I think, though, that if we saw God for who He really is, I think it would be impossible just for us to flippantly and nonchalantly enter into worship. Now, I do not mean that every bit of our time together as a church is going to be spent in total reverent silence and that we're never going to laugh or we're never going to let on that we're having a good time. That's not what I mean. I do mean, though, that if, if our lives are not changed by our time in worship, if we are never compelled to do the things that God has revealed for us to do in His Word, then I don't think we really have a relationship with the Lord. Because the presence of Christ in a person's life always produces fruit. A saved person will be changed in more and more obvious ways. But if our hearts and our lives are no different, then we have been offering the sacrifice of fools because listening and obeying are what's wrapped up in a relationship with God through Son Jesus Christ. Listening and obeying. And that's what is mentioned here in the first couple verses. In fact, this is the message of the first verse. A relationship is what God's want, God wants. Not some kind of half-hearted sacrifice. Remember what Jesus said in John 14? He said, if you love me, what are you going to do? You're going to keep or obey my commandments. What I've said. Well, where do we find the commandments that Jesus is talking about here? For us, in 2020, in the Bible alone, in His Word, Hebrews 1 makes that clear. God has revealed to us through Jesus Christ, and He is revealed, and John 1, 1 says, in His Word. So church, I want us to be sure that we hear this today. Worship, as we think about it, is about so much more than just singing. Now, remember, I say this as a 15-plus year music leader in our church and a guy who, who loves music. Our worship very often includes music, but there's so much more to what worship is. In fact, Paul says in 1 Corinthians 10.31 that whatever we do, no matter what we do, we do it all for the glory of God as an act of worship. That's what he then says also in Romans 12 verse 1. Our bodies and everything we are should be laid on the altar as an act of spiritual worship. That's what we're called to do. Now, in his commentary on Ecclesiastes, Danny Aiken says this. There's, these are some potent words that struck me this week that I wanted to share with you. He says, you can come to as many worship gatherings as you want and raise your hands high in the air. But if you cannot obey God's word, then you have a worship problem. The problem is that instead of listening and submitting, we tell the word what we will obey. 
We find it easy to submit to the parts we like and agree with, but we conveniently find alternative interpretations for the things that we don't like. If, if we say that we love the Lord, but we are constantly excusing ourselves from listening and obeying His Word, then Danny Aiken's right. We have a worship problem. And by worship problem, I mean that we are still worshiping ourselves and not God. Religiosity does not impress the Lord, and neither does empty worship. Solomon then moves on to another aspect of religion or religiosity that can actually be empty and devoid of meaning. In verse 2 and 3, he mentions both the tongue and the heart and their role in in prayer, in, in talking and communicating to God. So I think the tongue and the heart reference both what we speak with our mouths and also what we keep inside. And it's easy for religiosity to creep in to our prayer lives as well. But we're told here specifically not to be rash or hasty in what we say inwardly and outwardly, but why? The answer is also given here because God is God and you are not. Because God sits enthroned in heaven in the most authoritative place in existence and he hears you. Now, in our time of need, this is a soothing balm to our souls. To know and rest assured that when we cry out for help, our cries don't go unheard. God hears us and God is listening. But you know what? In our time of rebellion, this is a frightening realization. And I'm not sure where you are this morning, whether this is a comfort to you or or a fright to you, but we need to recognize that every bitter thought, every evil deed, every spoken word that we do in haste is heard by God who is in heaven. God hears me, both in what I say and in what I think, both in the good and in the bad. And specifically, in our prayers, we're taught here about the proper way and the foolish way of doing things. Just basically, don't take communication with God lightly. Now, this is not teaching that you need to use special words or something like that when you pray. In fact, what he's getting at here is exactly the opposite, and it's also the opposite of what Jesus taught. Remember, in Matthew 6, verses 7 and 8, he said, When you pray, don't heap up a bunch of empty phrases as the heathens do, for they think that they will be heard for their many words. Don't be like them, for your Father knows what you need before you ask Him. So what was the heathens' mistake? In this text, what was going on? Why would Jesus say that that they weren't doing it right? Well, their mistake was thinking that their long-winded prayers and their big words somehow pleased God. But in truth, God is more pleased with a simple and a genuine prayer. And we find this in Luke 18.33. Jesus is pointing out a tax collector and a Pharisee. And when it comes to the tax collector, it says that standing far off, he would not even lift up his eyes to heaven. But he beat his breast saying, God, be merciful to me, a sinner. So the issue isn't really even what you say or necessarily how you say it. The issue is what's going on in your heart. What is in your heart? And verse 3 in Ecclesiastes 5 is connected to this as well. He says, he starts talking about work and dreams. Well, with a lot of work or business uh, comes dreams. 
comes sleep. So lots of work leads to tired bodies. Tired bodies leads to sleep, and sleep oftentimes leads to, to dreaming. I don't know about you, but I've heard of, of stories of people having really vivid and wild dreams lately just because of the their routines being thrown off and all of that kind of thing. I wanted to share with you a situation that my wife and I had. When we were first married, we lived in a tiny apartment. I was still in school and she was working full time. And we had just watched this suspenseful movie called The Village, I think is what it was. And uh, we didn't think a whole lot of it. And we went to bed and um, we, we were positioned in our bedroom where she was sleeping on one side of the bed and I was sleeping on the other side. And then I was between her and, and the closet in the bathroom in that area. And at some point in the middle of the night, I mean, we're talking two, three o'clock, we're fast asleep. I hear her move. Or I feel, you know, the bed move. And I, I just kind of look over and, and she just, she just sits up. She just sits straight up out of bed and she's got this like glazed look over her eyes. And remember, we're first married, so I'm not sure what's happening here. And she just got this glazed look over her eyes and she just sticks her hand out like this and she says, I don't mean to scare you, but they're right over there. So I'm laying in bed now, immediately terrified. No idea what's going on. And so I'm laying there. Of course, my whole body stiffens up and she's pointing over here. And I just kind of lean and I look over and I don't, I don't see anything. I see the closet. I see the, the bathroom door. I look back at her and her face turned from just this deadpan glazed over look. And, and she just she smiled. She, she just smiled after that. And then she just as just as weirdly as she sat up. She just sat right back down. She just laid right back down. Didn't remember a thing. She had some kind of a vivid dream that adversely affected me as her husband in the bed, but it wasn't real. Her dream wasn't real, obviously. Thankfully, it wasn't real. And most of our dreams tend to, tend to be not real. They're fantasy. They, they don't represent real life. Some of the pieces of it have aspects of real life, but, but it's not real. What happens in your dream is not real. So we don't have to recite any incantation or say a specific phrase in order to get God's attention. Our dreams don't represent what's really going on in reality. And so a fool's voice with many words refers to someone who thinks that using a lot of words in order to impress God is going to work. And in, in the end, it, it's foolishness. Just like thinking that our dreams are going to predict the future or do something that they're not designed to do. These things do not impress God. Ritualistic religiosity does not impress God. But you know what does? Sincerity and faith. Sincerity and faith. Remember in uh, Luke chapter 7, Jesus marveled at the faith of the centurion. He was shocked and amazed by the faith of this man. That's what stands out to God. In his book on Ecclesiastes, Tremper Longman connects it this way by saying, you're living in a fantasy world if you think that your many words will affect God. Just like our dreams are a fantasy world, you're living there if you think that all of your big fancy words and long phrases are impressing God. That's not what impresses him. Sincerity and faith do. So then in verse 4, 
of Ecclesiastes 5, the preacher moves on to something that maybe on the surface we are a lot less familiar with. It's making vows. So in the Old Testament, vows were commitments made by a person to do something for God in hopes that God would then in turn do something for them. Now, this was more than just like the spiritual IOU, like, hey God, you do this for me and I owe you one. It was more than that. A vow was made in hopes that, that God would answer, most of the time, a specific request. And it was connected to something that the person making the vow was then going to do. Okay, they might offer later uh, sacrifice or give belongings or maybe property or money in exchange for God meeting this request that they were making a vow to. Uh, We're told quite a bit about vows in the Old Testament, and I wanted to point out specifically from Deuteronomy chapter 23, verses 21 through 23. This is instruction to the people of Israel. If you make a vow to the Lord your God, You shall not delay fulfilling it, for the Lord your God will surely require it of you, and you will be guilty of sin if you delay. But if you refrain from vowing, you will not be guilty of sin. You should be careful to do what is passed from your lips, for you have voluntarily vowed to God, the Lord your God, what you have promised with your mouth. So, it wasn't required to make a vow, but some people chose to do it anyway for any number of reasons. In Ecclesiastes 5, 4 through 7, they give us instruction and cautions if someone chooses to make a vow to God. First off, right off the bat, don't delay in paying it. Pay, pay what you vow. Now, we might correlate this today to making a promise to God during some time of crisis in our lives. I think you understand what I'm getting at here. A kid might say, you know, God, if you help me pass this test, I promise I'll read the Bible more. Or an adult might say, God, if you help me get this job, I I promise that I'm going to take my family to church on a regular basis every Sunday. Maybe you've done that kind of thing before. I know I have in the past. And it's easy to get caught up in the moment and make a, a not very well thought out promise or, or deal with God. Well, what usually happens with these kinds of vows? Do you end up doing what you said? Do you, do you keep your promise? Oftentimes, we look back at a situation where we saw God and His hand at work for our good And then we realize that we have completely forgotten our end of of the bargain, uh, our vow to the Lord, if you will. And Solomon is is saying here, hey, it would be better to not make a vow at all than to make one and then not keep it or not pay it. Instead, he's got some pretty basic advice that I think would do us all a lot of good to hear this morning. Just keep your mouth shut. Don't, don't make that kind of vow. Our mouths and our words that we speak, man, they easily get us into trouble, don't they? Uh, can anyone else relate to that, that your mouth gets you into trouble sometimes? I don't think it's a stretch then here to say that our mouths, as verse 6 puts it, can lead us into sin. Our mouths lead us into sin sometimes. And so he tells, or he says, that telling the messenger that your vow was a mistake as a means of wiggling out of your commitment is not going to work because God hears your every word. Remember, this is both very comforting sometimes and very concerning sometimes depending on what you just said. So the messenger here in these verses 
is translated angel in, in some versions. But the idea is that it's some kind of messenger of God. And that's really what an angel means. So, so this could be some kind of temple official or some kind of priest. And really, whoever it was, whoever it was, they heard you, your vow made in public, made to the Lord. And then you have a witness that you're now expected to keep the vow. So the messenger heard it, but now you're trying to get out of fulfilling it by saying it was a mistake to begin with. So, I mean, do we think that God has already forgotten what we've said, what we've vowed? Or do we think that God doesn't care about what the words are that we say and speak? We've already heard that he does. Well, turn the tables for just a moment. Think about it this way. Let's say that you promise to give someone... 100 pounds of of beef if they cut your grass for the summer. Now, we're thinking about it in bartering terms because of the situation that we're in, but let's just say that you you commit to do that. 100 pounds of meat for someone to cut your yard all summer. And at the end of the summer, they come to you for payment. They've done a fine job. And you say, well, you know, I'm sorry. I shouldn't have made that promise because, you know what, I don't have that much beef left anymore to give you. You know, that was a mistake. Sorry, bud. Imagine if that happened. Wouldn't that cause a bit of anger to rise up in you? Wouldn't that reek of deception? Wouldn't that hurt your relationship with that person? Well, of course. This is how God feels too. Verse 6, why should God be angry at your voice and then destroy the works of your hands? So your mouth, because of your flippant promise, has led you into sin. Now, truth be told, we've probably all done this kind of thing. But not only to another person, in essence, we're sinning against the Lord as well. Well, how should we respond? What should we do when we've failed, when we've made a promise that we can't keep? Should we just excuse ourselves because everyone does it? Should we try to hide it and hope that the person forgets or think that it's not a big deal to God? Well, we have an example in Scripture of someone who was stuck in this situation and and it did not end well for them. Think to Acts chapter 5 with Ananias and Sapphira. They had sold some land and they said that they were going to give all of the proceeds to the church. Uh, They made a vow to do that. But then they kind of conspired between the two of them to keep some of the money back for themselves. And when it was found out that they were lying... Each one of them was disciplined by the Lord and it cost them their lives so that the power of God would be clear as the church was being established. It cost them their lives. It says the fear of the Lord came upon everyone who heard of it, both in the church and people outside the church. And they feared God. Now, here's the thing. Neither God nor the church elders required that Ananias and Sapphira give all of the proceeds from their land sale to the church. They were not obligated to do that. The problem wasn't in the amount given. The problem was with the deception that was in their hearts. They lied to the Spirit of the Lord. They wanted to be thought better of by the community and maybe by the Lord Himself by giving a large amount of money to the church. But it proved to be their downfall. So our response shouldn't be excusing it away. 
like it never happened. It shouldn't be lying about what we've done. And it shouldn't be trying to hide it either. Instead, the proper response is to confess our wrongdoings and repent of it, both to God and to the people that we've hurt. Otherwise, we're in danger, as we find out here, of God judging us as we deserve. And we deserve to be dealt with severely and perhaps have the work of our hands destroyed, verse 6 says. See, religiosity is trying to make ourselves look better by making big promises. But in the end, our true motives are always revealed. Now, moving into verse 7 of Ecclesiastes chapter 5, this kind of wraps up this section by reminding us of the irrationality of thinking that our fancy words or our big promises affect God in our favor. Now, to be clear, using big words is not wrong unless you think that they make you closer to God or than the person who doesn't use them. So what should we know about God in light of this text? How should we relate to him? Well, I think the end of verse 2 and the end of verse 7 give us a a congruent uh, answer here. They give us the same kind of an answer, and it's two things. Number one, recognize that God is in heaven and that you are on earth. God is high and, and we are low here. He's sovereign in his ways, and he's more than just a little wiser than us. And from 7b, we're told to fear him. We're supposed to understand that God judges the heart, not just the religious rituals that we do. Now, if we're honest, a large part of our lives are spent trying to impress other people. If we're honest, a large part of them are trying to impress other people. We try to do this with our education. We try to do this with our experiences, with our job success, with the way that our bodies look, with the kind of clothing that we wear, the the homes that we have, our vehicles that we drive, and the list just goes on and on. You fill in the blank of how we try to impress people. But when will we realize that those things don't impress God? When will we realize that God values humility over pride? He values gentleness over impatience. That he values forgiveness over revenge. God not only knows every word that we speak, he knows the intentions of our heart, Hebrews 4.12 says. So we need a fresh view of God in this way to be able to stand before him in humility and bow before him in awe. Hebrews 12, 28 and 29 remind us, they say, Therefore, let us be grateful for receiving a human a kingdom. Let me start over, because I read that wrong. Therefore, let us be grateful for receiving a kingdom that cannot be shaken. And let us offer to God acceptable worship with reverence and awe, for our God is a consuming fire. We are only able to stand in the presence of God, who is a consuming fire. We are only able to stand in His presence at all because of Jesus Christ. Don't forget that this morning. Hear that this morning. We no longer have to shed the blood of bulls and goats as an offering for sin, simply because Jesus is the full, sufficient, and perfect one-time offering that completely makes a person right before God. So, though we approach the throne with fear and awe, we also approach the throne with confidence because of the saving blood of Jesus Christ. If He has saved your sin, you can approach the throne with confidence. Here again from Hebrews, this time chapter 10, starting in verse 19. 
Therefore, since we have confidence to enter the holy places by the blood of Jesus, by the new and living way that He opened for us through the curtain, that is, through His flesh, and since we have a great high priest over the house of God, let us draw near with a true heart in full assurance of faith, with our hearts sprinkled clean from an evil conscience and our bodies washed with pure water. Let us hold fast the confession of our hope without wavering, for He who promised is faithful. Our relationship with God then is not based on our big offerings and it's not based on our long prayers and it's not based on our well-meaning promises. God's love for us and our relationship with Him is rooted firmly on what Jesus has done at the cross and rising from the grave and it's based firmly on who Jesus is now. And these are things that cannot be changed by anything you do or anything I say. Praise be to God for this. Remember, God is not impressed by our ritualistic religiosity, but He is impressed by our sincerity and by our faith. Let's pray this morning together. God, I pray that we would relate to You appropriately, in reverence and awe, but also with the kind of confidence that a child has running towards the open arms of their loving Father. Forgive us, Lord, of our our misguided efforts in trying to look better to other people, in trying to impress other people with earthly things. Lord, remind us again that you always see what's in our hearts. Cleanse us from our religiosity and help us to be real and genuine, both, Lord, with you and with one another in the church. Um, We echo the prayer of the tax collector this morning and say, Lord, be merciful to me, a sinner. God, help us to go and to spend each moment living for you. In the name of Christ, we pray. Amen.